0: Sorry, I'm like I'm not the best morning person.
1: It's, I see it says I love coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Uh guess we're gonna go now, right? Okay. Okay, and, and here we are again. With David Kellogg, the one, the one and only. Can I call you the one and only David, <laughs> David Kellogg? Is that too much?
1: Oh no, there are lots of David Kellogg's <laughs> Star <starring> Disney movies. <laughs>
0: Is that a little too thick? Um <laughs> I want to start off a little bit today. Well, first of all, thanks very much. And uh, it's good to see you. Just a pleasure. Two, I guess two quick points of embarrassment on, my, uh, on a personal end for me. One, um, I have, like, my name on this podcast that I didn't intend. And it has Vygotsky's name on it. And that's a little weird because I was only just starting off just trying to be somebody who's learning, sharing what I was learning. But what happens once in a while, once in a very rare while, is maybe a friend of mine will will try to ask me about Gotsky, the Gotsky podcast, what's that all about? And I'll have maybe like three or four minutes to try to give a summary answer. And I inevitably fail or do a mediocre job at best. So that's point number one. That's a little awkward just from my, my perspective that I don't have like a like a, maybe like an elevator summary um, and the second thing is i was looking through some old chats that you and i conducted and this was embarrassing as well because i think two years ago one of the chats the theme was kind of the same question i'm asking again today so that was a little embarrassing that oh it just shows that's a good question <laughs> that, I think I, I think sometimes I try to offload some of my thinking to others. Like, uh, And I realize I have to do this myself as far as coming up with a nice uh, sort of simple, but not simplistic, um, easier way to describe or explain Vygotsky. Probably first to myself and then, and then maybe to others as well. So I will go right to my first question, if it's okay. And uh, I'm going to check my notes because I woke up like 10 minutes. So, um, so are there? I would say what, in your opinion, are maybe one or two prominent barriers um, to making Vygotsky accessible yet still accurate for the public, for the layman, for the non-expert, possibly even for the non-academic? Um, why do you think, this is just my opinion, why do you think so few are willing to engage in this topic? That seems to be the case. Like, shouldn't we be able to talk about Vygotsky? In many different registers you know sort of like very insider discourse and, and also like public friendly ones so that's kind of where i'd like to hand it to you if you don't mind and again yeah. good, good to see
1: you i tell you it's a good question so uh right now the main barrier for us is time uh if you think about how a three-year-old or a seven-year-old would respond to an interesting proposition you know like oh, I don't know, a trip to Seoul land here, in, which is an amusement park here in Seoul, or, or Legoland, which is currently bankrupting the Kaohsiung government. Uh, you know, The child wants to see it, and the adult says, no. And The child says, why not? And the child says, because I said so. And the adult says, I, because I said so. And this could go on for some hours. And what I will call this is complex discourse, but vertical complexity, because mm-hmm. it's sort of question, answer, objection, rejoinder, and so on. And the actual grammatical contributions to the discussion are quite short, (laughs) but the conversation as a whole is extremely long. So one thing we can say is that children are somehow programmed to do very complex things, so long as the sentences are short. (laughs) And we can say pretty much the same thing about adults, that is to say adults can, if they've got the time, and the nice thing about Anthony is that he does have the time, and he puts together these these chats, uh, this podcast, uh, to try to take what I will call horizontal complexity, and uh, turn it into some vertical complexity. That's my short answer. But for a good long answer, let's see. I and need to shift my, yeah, my screen a bit.
0: You got it. And <laughs> David, before you uh, before you get into vertical complexity, can you can you maybe just tilt your camera just vertically, just a tad, so that
1: uh, oh, so you get a mugshot, Huh? Okay. How's that?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna, I want I want to see your whole face. Okay. It's such a handsome face. So we want to see the whole thing. Uh, okay.
1: well, well, here's see, a handsome
0: speaking of, speaking of handsome faces, is this a self portrait or what?
1: Uh, actually, it's even more interesting than that. This is Walter Benjamin, the wonderful literary critic who committed suicide on the border between France and Spain because the Nazis were closing in on him. He was a Jew, of course, and uh, it seemed like a better end than a concentration camp. But the border opened the next day. And so it was a bit of a it was, a, yeah, it was a um, pathetic ending to what was really a noble life. Uh, Benjamin was one of our greatest literary critics. And when he was elected to the student council in his first year at the University of Berlin, he wrote an article in the student newspaper in which he said, the only real jobs that a school will ever prepare us for is research and teaching. Now, like a lot of things that Benjamin said, this is a very profound remark and it will take, it took him another 10 or 15 years to unravel it. And it's full of meaning that's true on more than one level. So let me just point out um, three levels. The first level is that Benjamin is saying that schools have only two jobs to do. The problem is that those two jobs have two different points of view. (laughs) So from the teacher's point of view, That is to say, from the point of view of learning and teaching, the two jobs are finding out new stuff, cool stuff, good stuff, research. And the other job is adding that new stuff to the old stuff, publication, but also teaching. Teaching is how I share my ideas with my students before I write them down and publish them. That's from the teacher's point of view. Seen from the student point of view, I mean, for for you, Anthony, it's really podcasting as well as talking to the tykes. You still doing eighth grade? Yes. Oh, yeah. Super. Very important age for Vygotsky, as we're going to see. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Uh,
1: From the student point of view, listening uh, and reading. I mean, if you ask most students, what do you do at university? I listen to lectures and I read books. Uh, but when you break that down, it's learning on the one hand and development on the other or self-development is probably the best way to put it. And, and I'd say one of the differences between my students and yours, Anthony, is that my students, it's about self-development. Your students, uh, it's a little early for self-development. You lock them in a library and they'll go nuts. So I think uh, that gives us four things, but it's really only two things. It's the two legitimate jobs of school are essentially research and teaching, which is exactly what Benjamin said. So, the next thing is that Benjamin's comment suggests two quite different kinds of knowledge. Let me get back to that in a minute and say that uh, when Benjamin made this remark, what he really meant was that preparation for a job, if you want a job, go to a place where they have jobs. Job preparation is best done on site. And so, uh, just as if you would go to a factory in order to learn to be a welder, which is what I did when I was a teenager, uh, you would go to a university for two reasons, and that's teaching and learning, because and there ain't nothing else. Now, finally, fatally, fatally I say, because I think this is the source of Antony's question, of Antony's problem, uh, Benjamin's comment suggests that there are two different kinds of knowledge. I'm not sure this is true, but I think the comment suggests that. And one kind of knowledge I'm going to call esoteric knowledge. Esoteric knowledge. And Anthony Wright at this point might say, well, why call it that? Why not just call it tough stuff or something like that? Or <laughs> well, why not just call it research? And uh, I'm going to say because we have history and that the history of esoteric knowledge actually goes back uh, in your part of the world, to monkish knowledge, to, you know, people like, oh, I don't know, Thomas Aquinas, and um, Saint Jerome, and uh, um, Augustine, and, and and then even further, and that's esoteric knowledge, the knowledge of the monks. In my part of the world, it's it's mostly about Buddhism, and so again, once again, it's monks and monasteries.
0: Which, which might be a topic of a future conversation, possibly, down the road. Just
1: Yeah, you've you got to pay people to sit and Just bookmarking a, a side
0: note there, yeah.
1: Yeah, you got to pay people to sit and think, and you got to have some institution for graffiti <laughs> while, while they're sitting there and thinking and so on. So there's esoteric knowledge, and that's where our research comes from. That's where the new acts and the new facts come from, where the new books come from. And these tend to be acts and facts and books that are not easy to share, because they're new, they're cutting edge. Uh, but there's more to it than that. And then the second kind of knowledge is exoteric knowledge, exoteric knowledge in the sense of extending outwards, demotic or, or demo, um, I'm going to say democratic because, it, because it, it can spread to ordinary people. And that's pretty much teaching old facts, old acts, stuff that's very shareable because stuff that's already been shared for a couple hundred years esoteric knowledge and exoteric knowledge. Now, as soon as I lay them out like that, you can see that they're linked. When something has been esoteric for a while, it becomes exoteric. That's called human progress. And in fact, to go back to our picture of Benjamin, that's really where it comes from. Uh, this is a not Benjamin. This is a Paul Clay, and it's one of um, Mike Cole's favorite he calls it a painting, and so does Benjamin. It's not a painting. It's a monoprint, which means you just put ink on a piece of glass, and you put a paper on it. And you only get one print, but, mm. uh, but you know, Clay didn't, didn't care. So it's called the Angelus Novus. And uh, Benjamin's comment is somewhat poetic. He says, the Angelus Novus shows us an angel looking as though he's about to move away from something he is contemplating, meditating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past, towards us. Uh, When we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling rubbish, wreckage upon wreckage. It hurls the wreckage in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay. He would like to talk. He would like to teach. He would like to awaken the dead. And he would like to make whole the rubbish that has been smashed but there is a storm blowing from paradise it has caught in its wings with such violence this angel can no longer close his wings the storm propels him irresistibly towards the future to which his back is turned and the pile of rubbish before him grows skyward that storm is what we call progress and uh, that's one of Mike's favorite paintings and favorite bits of Benjamin, and I think it does say something true. That storm is what we call progress, and it's what it's what turns uh, esoteric knowledge research into exoteric knowledge teaching. Now, school is the place where these two kinds of language should come into contact, should interact, should transform each other, because you you can see they're. Okay, they're distinct, but that means they're linked. They're linked through history, through the angel of history. And yet, in school, they seem to have failed to interact and failed to contact. And we have to ask ourselves why. And that brings me (laughs) to Antony's question. Now, here's a bad answer. I'm going to give you two bad answers before I give you my answer. The first bad answer I'm going to call the anti-intellectual answer. The demagogic answer. I think you'll recognize it because it's, uh, it's election time over there in the United States.
0: The demagogic <laughs> answer. Here, here in the United States where the, the left and the right are too woke.
1: Don't hey. <laughs>
0: This might be be an example of the woke right you're about to share, but we'll see. We'll see.
1: So, yeah, the The intellectual way is to blame the education department. The education department is ivory tower, the education department is elitist. The educators shut themselves away from us ordinary people with technical jargon, you know, things like exoteric. Exoteric, what the hell does that mean? Uh, technical jargon nobody understands, and they ignore the issues that people really care about. Uh, This notice, this demagogic, populist, anti-intellectual answer ends up being more elitist. Because what you're really saying is, there are only a few of us, a few select, real Americans, too cool for school, who can see through this elitist chicanery. And see the concrete, sinister conspiracy beyond it. You know, critical race theory and integrated bathrooms and stuff like that. I think a better way is to look at language. Uh, and one way to look at language is the kind of crude, sort of vertical versus horizontal way that I just gave you. Sort of grammatical complexity is it's horizontal complexity and discourse right. complexity. Is vertical complexity it's not that simple obviously because i can yeah, make interesting of off.
0: course if, if, if uh if i didn't have to go to work you know in an hour i would i would definitely bookmark here and, and we'd expand just for, just momentarily but that's that's for another day but please continue
1: well let me continue with the criticism of it um i, I think anytime you get a very simple generalization like that you have to stop and say wait a minute it's possible to make sentences that are very long, but very simple. This is a very, 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 long sentence. It's a long sentence, but it's pretty simple. And it's also possible to make very short sentences that are, you know, well, lexically complex, like ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That's only three words. Yeah. And it's also possible to use short words, but to say very complicated things like um, the is is the was of what shall be, or um, the child is father of the man, to take a poetic line from Wordsworth. I mean, these are not simple. These, these look, the, the grammar is, is not that complicated, actually, uh, but uh, they're still difficult. So I think the vertical, you know, the, but, but language is a, good, is a good foot in the door. I, I agree that language is a good foot in the door. And here's an example the teacher walks into the door, uh, walks into the classroom with a technical concept, such as the nuclear family. Say you're teaching social studies, okay? To explain it, you need examples. So you say, okay, um, let's take your own family. You know, you got a brother, you got a sister, you got a mom and a dad, presumably. Well, you got one of them anyway. Uh, And then, you know, you explain what a nuclear family is. The child then leaves the classroom with a concrete image. And that's good, it's vivid, it's clear. But the child has not left with an abstract concept of a nuclear family. The child is only thinking of his own family. And that's the way in which he's gonna construct his idea of the nuclear family. And maybe what happens is the child goes home to this uh, nuclear family or this example of a nuclear family and someone will say, ah, you're being brainwashed. It's all nonsense. Uh, the new your, people are trying to tell you that the nuclear family is radioactive and it's you know going to explode like a bomb or something like that. Now you can see that uh, where some of the where this second explanation, looking at language, is actually connected to the first explanation, and and we're essentially just like when we looked at schools from the point of view of the teachers and the learners, we're looking at this same question from two different points of view, as you said from the right wing woke point of view i'm a screaming left winger i'm not going to call my point of view uh um woke i'm going to call it enlightened (laughs) or awakened (laughs) it's you anthony (laughs) i I love keep sucking on that (laughs) (laughs) yes
0: okay that's Uh, that's certainly the coming together point that uh that these secret enlightenments that they both seem to have but Uh, yes, please continue.
1: We Jews are very into enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There is actually another truth beyond both of these. Um, There's a simpler, unsensational, kind of unromantic, everyday reason why we're not very good at talking about Vygotsky in public-friendly ways. Hmm. Public-friendly registers. This is (coughs) Antoine. It's a good word. I like register. Halliday liked register. Uh, But he meant something quite technical by it. But it's definitely linked to what Antony means by it. It's it's the variations in grammar you find according to the different uses of language. And what that means is that there are academic registers because there are, you know, academic registers are very rich in nominalizations, for example, but there are also class playground registers and classroom registers and good word registers. I like it. Teaching is hard. It's that simple. You know, the reason we're not good at talking about Vygotsky and public-friendly registers is that teaching is hard, just like learning. And so because teaching is hard and because when we present concepts to eighth graders, they walk out of the classroom without the concept, with all the examples, but no concept. Uh, We like to tell stories because stories seem to, to build concrete experiences, one after the other, until you come to some kind of a a coda, a conclusion. Not always a concept, but sometimes a pseudo-concept, and sometimes even a concept. Freedom is good. Uh, Consent is necessary. Um, Love is an ideal, but somewhere it is real for other people. And all of those things are concepts.
0: Love is also the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a concept. (laughs) Okay, so we like to tell stories. Stories seem like a good compromise between the concrete experience that the child has of the nuclear family and the abstract concept of the nuclear family that we want to teach. Stories seem like a a good place to meet, a good place to spend a few years gradually, gradually showing the child that there is life beyond his or her own concrete example of the nuclear family. Uh, And that it's not entirely alien to their own concrete experience, but it's not reducible to it either. So um, teaching's hard, and so is learning, and it takes years And to while away the time we teachers tell stories. For example, there's this story that Antony sent me. Oh, it must have been six months or a year ago that you sent me this link, Anthony, from the Khan Academy. And I am not going to play it. <laughs> I guess you can put the link up on your podcast and tell people that if they, you know, if they really want to suffer, they can click on it and, and hear this fairy story. Uh, but basically, I'll sum it up. Um, the, the coda that this story that the Khan Academy wants you to believe in is that you can learn anything feel good, because you can learn anything. Why? Because the more you learn, the more you are, the better you are at learning, and eventually you'll be able to learn everything or anything that you want to learn. Yeah, right. So uh, this very exoteric video goes back to an esoteric debate. It goes back to the debate between Piaget and Bruner, where Bruner, who He wasn't woke. He was a CIA operative in Europe. Uh, He was certainly very conservative, very Cold War. uh, But he was idealist. I mean, people on the other side are very idealistic sometimes. uh, And people on my side are cynical sometimes and and cold-blooded and mercenary.
0: Zoom Uh, out, zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. There's the human side. Not your screen, not your screen, but...
1: Oh no! But, but there's I'm, I'm also
0: afraid. the human side, but go ahead, continue. Yeah. Um, which, which is no. just to, which is just to say, you know, if you are uh, blessed or cursed, and in being a human being, there's going to yeah. be so many things that you have, you know, just inevitably in common.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and all, one of the things we have in common is that we're sort of fixed by our place of birth. And Bruner was born in America, so he ended up. Uh, kind of right-wing and kind of idealistic. And Piaget was born in Europe, and so he ended up quite left-wing, not not by my standard, but my standards are crazy Uh, left-wing. But he was a socialist, and he went to Moscow and did lots of things like that. Um, But but kind of cynical. (laughs) And uh, and even a little mercenary. So Bruner says, it's possible to teach a child anything, at any age, in some way that is honest. (laughs) <laughs> and Piaget looked at this, ignored the last five words, because Piaget, let it be said, was not always very honest when it came to intellectual debates. So, for example, he blocked the publication of Vygotsky for mm. probably decades, and eventually refused to write the foreword to thinking and speech, so that Bruner had to do it! That's Bruner true. is the one who introduced vygotsky to us. Bruner! <clears throat> so anyway, Piaget ignored the last five words and said, oh, Mr. Brunner thinks that he can teach anything to any child at any age. Well, perhaps he would like to teach the theory of relativity to a five year old. Huh, maybe he should do that. Yes. Well, Actually, later, Piaget turned around, met Einstein, and said that children already knew the theory of relativity because they think topographically about space instead of thinking three dimensionally about space. Topographic topography means you, know, you think of like don't you think of the human being as a donut because he has a hole right down the middle, and you think of things as being stretchable. You don't think of things as having three hard dimensions. That's topographical thinking, and in some ways, it is related to Einstein's theory of relativity. So, PJ was not very honest, but the con video is not very honest either. Uh, you know, you can learn anything. It feels good. It's, it gets people to sign up to your, your academy, which is probably what they're really interested in. But any serious child knows you lie. That's not true. You know, if the argument were made correct, if the argument that was being made here was correct, then the smartest people in the world would really be the dumbest, the people whose neurons are not myelinated and therefore they have connections in all directions and you know ms would be good for you because it destroys the myelin the myelination myelinization sorry in your brain and it's not good for you my sister has it it's not good for her uh she's probably going to die of it someday and her husband died of it quite Mm. recently yeah 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 it's I, I worry mostly about my sister but yes
0: understood yeah we we could i, I like hearing about i like hearing little quick references to your family yeah eh,
1: she was a ballet dancer and you can yeah. imagine what ms does to you when yes. you're a ballet dancer yeah it's tough yeah, yeah. So,
0: i bet she i bet she likes you um i bet i bet your dad likes you too we were, we were we were throwing around possible dates for meeting up today and uh one of them you're like i can't do it i have to have a scheduled meeting with my dad
1: oh yeah he, he's 95 yeah.
0: <laughs> he's 95 years old and rigorously engaged in research and, uh, yes
1: how cool yes. is that huh? <laughs> yeah and explaining why it is that the um the sun's corona is like a thousand times hotter than the surface of the sun this makes no sense at all and in fact nobody's been able to explain it and and yet you know, to, to go back to Piaget's remark about relativity, if you ask a child to draw a picture of the sun, they draw sort of a, this, a happy face with a kind of a lion's mane around it. Sure. Yeah. That lion's mane is the corona. Uh, and it's w- almost a scale. I mean, if you, if you measure the child's drawing and you measure the sun in an eclipse, you'll see that they're not that far off. Yeah. And yet, you know, this isn't something observed. It's something kind of felt. So there is something like intuition. Top, topographic intuition, as Piaget said, it's not Einsteinian relativity, and it's not what my dad's doing with the corona of the sun and the surface of the sun. But a, uh, a, a
0: question, a question for you to marinate on, not for now. Hmm. Um, are you smart because he's smart?
1: Uh, I don't think I'm very smart, Anthony. I mean, if you look at how I've led my life, I can't, I can't claim to be very smart.
0: Well, maybe and, a little and, wacky, but but you know but what I, I'm
1: saying, Dad Uh, that is a very different kind of smart. Um, And, you know, he's, I am not at all mathematically inclined. And he, he, when he writes a paper, it's three pages long and it's all equations. Uh, And it's got 50 authors. (laughs) When I write a paper, there's one or two authors. It's, you know, exactly 7,000 words and there are no equations. (laughs) So it's a very different kind of smart. And I find it very hard to believe that there's a gene for what he does and a gene for what I do, I do and that we somehow share that they somehow, you know, if there is, they're two very different genes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what do we teach the kids about their brains? Well, uh, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to cheat a little because I'm a linguist and I'm going to tell them a pun. I'm going to tell them stories, two kinds of stories. Now the, the English word story has two words, two meanings. One is um, story, which I'm going to spell S-T-O-R-E-Y, like a multi-story car park, you know, or like a bookshelf. So sort of first story, second story, third story. And then the other one I'm going to use to be narrative. So um, the first story, ah, oh, here's a beautiful story. This is the story of how Rembrandt got the money to stay in, um, to stay in Amsterdam where he wanted to move so that he could marry the mayor's daughter which he did by the way, but he also, he got money by paging this painting for which he was rewarded with one silver spoon. <laughs> and this is called, um, anatomy lesson of Dr. Col- Dr. Tolk. Uh, every year they hang, uh, a, a thief. Usually this was a guy who had stolen a coat and then they cut him up the next day for the benefit of the medical students. And so this is Dr. Tolk doing the, the public, uh, dissection of the hanged criminal and explaining how the nervous system works. And first he's going to explain how the nervous system works. And then this is actually another doctor later. He's going to dig into the brain. And you can see he's sawing. he just saw it open the skull when his best student is holding the skull cap there. And, and the, the innards are all gone. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that Rembrandt is telling his audience about. What do we tell our audience? about the brain? Well, the same thing actually. Uh, Buildings have many stories and so do nervous systems. So the first story is the spinal cord. Uh, All vertebrates have this and in fact the spinal cord is what allows the nervous system to kind of, this is a little bit personifying, it's not very scientific, this is where it stops being scientific, (laughs) The nervous system organizes the rest of the body around itself <laughs> instead of the other way around, as in plants and invertebrate animals. Well, you can say that's the, what it does, but of course it doesn't organize itself around the body, around the, you know, around the bones and, and so on. It doesn't do that the way that my wife organizes my bookshelf or organizes the kitchen. It's, these are two very different processes. It's a metaphor, it's a story. It happens to be a story that I think will help our kids get in on the ground floor. They'll figure out what part of it's true and what part of it's false. That's the first story, the spinal cord. The second story is the brainstem, which is the end of the spinal cord. And in the brainstem, you find what what Vygotsky calls vegetable functions. Now look at that word, there's a beautiful word. It's not quite as good as, as register, but it's pretty good. Vegetative functions are the functions that are not animal functions. They're the functions that, that you use when you're vegetating, when you're a couch potato, when you're asleep, your heartbeat and involuntary respiration and so on. Next story, keep going up, take the elevator and it takes you to the midbrain. These are the rudiments of your animal functions, especially sensation, especially emotion. Yes, crocodiles have feelings and so do turtles. And uh, the motor functions, well, motor functions, some of them are actually right there in the brainstem. That's why you get reflex actions. But for the most part, judgments, sort of premeditated motor functions, you gotta take the elevator one floor up and that's the cortex. That's this part. That's the part I don't have any hair on. That is the home of the higher psychological functions. And the higher psychological functions are where the theory of Vygotsky really takes its name. If you ask Vygotsky, you know, ask Vygotsky the question that you asked me, uh, what do you call this theory of yours? and, And how do I put it in just a few words so that I can share it on my podcast? Well, he'll say, my theory is the theory of the cultural historical development of the higher psychological functions. That's what he says. And I'll take him at his word. These are the functions that are uniquely human. They're specific to man. They're connected to history, culture, and to speech. And that's the top floor. That's in the cerebral cortex. So uh, none of this your brain can do anything stuff. Let's tell the kids the truth. The truth as Rembrandt saw it. The truth in all its bloody, anatomical, meaty uh, reality. Mm. That's not the only story. Very, very,
0: very quickly. I'm sorry to interrupt,
1: yeah.
0: and, I, and I'm also sorry because I don't want to slow you down. Because I have about no, no,
1: slow me down. I'm going too fast. About,
0: no, 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 no. It's great. Really, this is great. I have about probably 40 minutes before I have to go to work. Um, but is is the concept of uh, human nature? Would that be on the third floor there, brain wise? Uh, yeah, I'll just ask it that way
1: human nature
0: or or maybe or maybe even our let me replace that with animal instinct
1: um i think humans are human all the way up from the spinal cord right on up um you can you can sort of see this in little babies when they're just born so one Mm -hmm. of the reflexes which does not involve the cortex as far as we know it doesn't involve the midbrain probably doesn't even involve the medulla it's probably something that just takes place in the spinal cord is that if you take a baby and you kind of pretend like you're going to drop it, the baby will clutch for fur, will try to get fur, you know, try to, like a monkey that will, that wants to hang on its mommy's body. Or, you know, there's that, there's also the, um, you know, the reflex you get where you stroke the child's foot and the the toes spread out like this. Um, These are, as far as we know, specific to humans, and, and higher primates. Okay, so monkeys too. But they're, that they're spinal, okay? So human beings have human spinal cords, and human spinal cords are somewhat different from other species. But when you're talking higher psychological functions, higher psychological functions, it's not just that they don't appear until you get to the fourth floor. They don't even really appear in all their glory until the kid gets to eighth grade, until adolescence until the kids get to eighth grade, you are teaching animals. You're teaching, you're teaching the spinal cord, you're teaching the medulla, you're teaching the midbrain. It's only by the time the child reaches adolescence that the cortex starts to become home to the higher psychological functions. So I think this is a very simple story. Uh, it's not as simple as the con video. I think it's more interesting than the con video. And I think most of the kids who hear this story will say, oh, that's kind of cool, particularly if you give them nice bloody pictures to look at, you know, messy pictures. (laughs) Gross. Um, This story of the nervous system is not exactly wrong. I think it's one story that we can tell kids. And it gets us to another story, which is where the, the story that Vygotsky has to tell us really begins. Uh, people tell stories. History is a kind of story. It's not a fairy story. It's much more like the angel of history, uh, like, uh, like a pile of rubbish being blown by the winds of progress. Of course, it's not the whole story. It's not even the Vygotsky story, but it's a true story. It's a good place to start. So in China, we like to do things in fours and fives, sort of the five stresses and the four beautifies. Uh, When I was there, it was the four modernizations and the five constructions. And each stress or beautify or modernization or construction was a kind of slogan, you know, like, beautify our culture, beautify our manners, beautify whatever. Uh, Westerners like to do this, too. Uh, That's why we get PowerPoints. Uh, but, But Westerners are a little darker, sort of more Piagetian and less Brunarian in their imagination. Uh, so kids like to get tattoos i don't know. do kids kids are not allowed to get tattoos but they they do get them at least here in korea and they get those removable tattoos too so i I want you to think of these four sort of stresses or beautifies as as being things you could tattoo on a kid Uh, the four tattoos i'm going to recommend are number one higher psychological functions are higher (laughs) they're higher up number two start low aim high. Number three, cortex depends on context. And number four, context depends on cortex, because what's in your brain doesn't stay in your brain. It tends to travel. Uh, Let me elaborate those points a little before you actually get a tattoo. (laughs) So the first story is the story of your anatomy. It's the fact that higher psychological functions are well, they're higher. The fourth story is quite literally higher in your body than the first story. The cortex is higher up than the than the um, spinal column. In the spinal column, <clears throat> a few different couplings of neurons are possible in the brain. <sighs> the brain has more couplings possible than any computer ever had or will have. Evolution. Start low, but aim high. Evolution is the story of how functions get transferred upward. So for example, if you look at, you know, if you look at very, very primitive worms, they do have something like a spinal column. And that spinal column takes care of all the locomotion that the worm does. The brain essentially is basically a receptor for light, and that's it. That function of locomotion gets transferred upward uh, as evolution takes place. Uh, So we find that, for example, in fish, uh, the brain does exercise some control over where the fish goes. And we find that there's more and more central control of locomotion as we move onto land, upward through the mammals, and above all, when we get to humans. So gradually, these lower level functions are transferred upward. And this is what makes the first story I told about the different stories not entirely true. Because by the time you get to humans, each story, you notice that on the way up, each story tends to remake the lower stories in its own image. So uh, the spinal reflexes we have are remade as emotional reflexes by the midbrain. And the conscious reflexes we have in the cortex remake our emotions in some sense uh, in the image of cortex functions, cortical functions. Our third story is history. Cortex depends on context. History is the story of how the functions, the higher functions in your brain cortex, are coupled and decoupled in various ways. According to your cultural historical context, your culture, your language, different couplings of thinking, different couplings of words, even two different languages are possible in the cortex. This is why you have control over language, why you can pronounce things one way and not another, why you can say, shut up. And you can also say, why don't you wait a minute for your turn to talk? Uh, These are different couplings of words And they represent different decisions made somewhere in the cortex. And so that brings us to the fourth story. The fourth story is development. See, the story of teaching, Ah, yes, teaching, especially teaching eighth graders, especially teaching in schools where research on the one hand and exoteric knowledge on the other are both at hand. It means that what's in the brain of the teacher doesn't stay in the brain. Development is the story of how you learn to couple and decouple functions in your brain in different ways. Each time you do that, you influence the people around you. And better yet, you influence yourself. So each time you use a word like esoteric or exoteric, you make it more likely that you're going to use that word again. Before the, you know, before the talk is out, I will probably say esoteric and exoteric once more. Uh, and by using that word, you, you influence the, the probabilities of your own language use, but you also influence in a tiny way the probabilities of the language as a whole. This is true. It's true even if you don't say anything to anybody else, if you're just talking to yourself, because by talking to yourself, you make it likely that next time you talk to somebody else, you're gonna use a word and that word will propagate like a virus, like COVID, it will spread out into, uh, the, into the linguistic environment. And when enough of this happens, and we're talking really big numbers here, because, you know, I mean, you think about it, when the, the kid is three or four years old, he'll, he'll have heard, Uh, five or six million different clauses. So we're talking billions and even trillions of clauses. Uh, And yet we do know that certain expressions like woke, for example, or wokeism suddenly appear and they spread like viruses and they have an effect on the culture. And wokeism became a thing because somebody thought of it and didn't keep it to himself. And what was in that brain did not stay in that brain. So what Vygotsky shows us, those are the five tattoos I'm suggesting. You know, the five tattoos are psychological functions are higher because they're higher. They're higher up in the body. And uh, number two is start low, even with the worms and the invertebrates, but aim high higher primates. Uh, number three is that your cortex depends on context, but number four is that the context also depends on somebody's cortex, because what's in the brain doesn't stay in the brain. Those are four slogans that I think are true enough. <laughs> They're true enough to share, uh, first with Anthony, then with Anthony's podcast, and maybe even with anybody else who's interested in some kind of exoteric understanding of what Vygotsky's on about. Because what Vygotsky was on about was showing that these two kinds of stories, the, the first story about the different stories of the nervous system, which was mostly the specialty of Luria, but it was also Vygotsky. Vygotsky was doing medical studies in the Ukraine of all places. In fact, in, in Kharkiv, which you know was horribly shelled during the war earlier on, uh, and then also was the area where Vygotsky was traveling by train between Moscow and Kharkiv to take his classes was, was famine country. And so he's doing these medical studies because he's really interested in the first story. But he's, the bulk of his work is about the second story, the, the set of stories, the story of, of anatomy and, and evolution and then history and then child development and how those are linked together. What he did was to show that those stories are linked together. He didn't exactly show us how, <laughs> but they're distinct, the way that biology and chemistry are distinct, but they're linked. And that's, that's a kind of a, a mega story, a meta story, a story about a story of stories that you can tell about Vygotsky. But it doesn't tell us how they're linked. And so this is where I turn to my Halliday. Uh, I can't talk about Vygotsky without talking about Halliday, even though when you look at books that have been edited about Vygotsky and Halliday, you find that they consist of Vygotskians who never mentioned Halliday and Hallidayans who never mentioned Vygotsky. Well, I'm afraid I can't mention one without the other. <laughs> That's just the way I am. What Halliday did was to show how the higher psychological functions and the other stories uh, that we have lived through are linked. And one way he illustrated this is just a four panel comic strip. (laughs) And he says a comic strip has two dimensions. One dimension we will call movement through time. It's also movement through space, but he called it expansion. So if you go panel one and then panel two, and then panel three, and then somewhere else, we'll call that expansion. And you can see that when you look at expansion this way, when you look at a comic strip this way, what you get is action, and then action, and then action, and then action. A lot of action movies are like this, blockbusters. There's an action, there's an action, there's an action, and then everybody gets killed. There are a few grunts in, in, in between, and then there's an explosion, and so on and so forth. But essentially, they're all lower-level psychological functions. Fear and fighting. The things that animals do. The things that even worms do. You know, even... Uh, <clears throat> fish and uh, reptiles and rats do. They have fear and they have action. But comic strips also have this other dimension, the vertical dimension, dimension which Halliday calls projection. And projection involves, well, facial expressions, because those are higher. <laughs> you know, they're on the end of your spinal cord. and um,
0: As opposed to your scampering or running away feet.
1: Yeah. Exactly, they're higher up. <laughs> yes, thanks to thanks to a trick of evolution that we pulled from several, you know, hundred million years ago. We started walking on our feet, uh, yeah, and then and then be, became bipedal, and they got higher and higher. And then language, language is where the action really starts. And after language, there's thinking, and you can see that, you know, comics arrange this. They arrange action in one dimension, and they arrange the, the gradual ascent of human beings from physical movement to emotional expression to higher thoughts and to language. They, we can arrange those around one axis too. Why? Well, it's a folk concept. It's an, let me say, it's an exoteric way of understanding uh, higher psychological functions. Projection. Projection is, I think that. I feel that, because people do feel things. You, you can feel cold, you can feel hot, you can't feel cold that the air conditioner is on or feel hot that, you know, the, the heating is on or something like that. But you can say, I feel that you are unfair to the left, Anthony. and I feel that you are, uh, uh, that, you ima- that you think that I am being too woke or something like that. You can feel that, it's sort of a gut feeling and you can project with it because... It's not a sensation we share with animals. It's a higher psychological function. And then you think, you think that, and this ability to project, to think that, to think in quotations, to think in acts and facts, to think of, to think of consciousness itself as being an object of action. That's the higher psychological function. It's in our grammar. It's in our grammar, the way that uh, physical action is in our bones. So, The lower psychological processes, the sensory motor processes for seeing and doing, uh, they are what gives us expansion for the most part. And uh, the higher psychological processes, the feeling, the thinking, and above all the saying, get foregrounded. And when we're writing for adolescents who are starting to think about feeling, to feel their thoughts, and above all to speak their minds, that vertical move is the most important thing. Hey, If comic strips can do it, I don't see why college professors can't do it. And since comic strips can do it, I'm going to share with you something I'm teaching to my college students. It's uh, Webtoons. Uh, I don't know if you have, do you even have Webtoons over there in America? Yes. Okay, so you know what they are. You know that they're Webtoons that don't actually go horizontally like a comic strip. They mostly go vertically because You know, I ride the bus every day and everybody's sort of flicking their cell phone like this because they're reading the latest webtoon. Well, this semester I'm teaching a class on how to do webtoons and the kids don't know what to write about. There is a a webtoon on our school website, but it's a little mushy and romantic and and my students don't really want to do that. So I said, just write about life, (laughs) write about your life, write about your big decisions. And one of my students, JN, decided she's going to write about her dilemma, which is she's thinking of entering a fashion graduate school in London, or she's thinking of sitting down and taking the teacher's exam here in South Korea so she can be an eighth grade teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, Anthony. Yes. She, wants to be a, she wants to be a middle school teacher. So Well, actually, she wanted to be a fashionista until last year, but she says to me a couple months ago, you know, Professor Kellogg, after taking your class, I've decided I really want to be a middle school teacher.
0: Well, please, please tell her that... Uh she could look to me for proof positive that you could be both fashionista and middle school teacher at the same time
1: okay. <laughs> <That's good. laughs>
0: in case you haven't noticed
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> so i gave her a bunch of ways of um of turning this into what we were talking about at the very beginning that is to say into horizontal complexity. She's doing a very simple storyboard before she does the drawing. As you can see, we have to get some professional help with the drawing, but um, she doesn't like it very much. I think it's kind of cute, but um, but she doesn't like it very much. So I said, Look, we'll just do the storyboarding. And her storyboarding was what I will call paratactic. It's sort of one thing and then another thing and then another thing and then another thing. So I'm I'm teaching her how to, how to elaborate, extend and enhance. Okay, so you can see that All of these are kind of one thing and then another thing, but they're differently related. Elaboration is just sort of, in other words, and then you say the same thing. Uh, Extension is, I'll add one thing on, one thing only. So Jen got interested in fashion. Not only that, she got a part-time job designing clothes. And uh, Jen got interested in fashion. And her friend Ginny got interested in fashion too. Just one thing. Enhancement is meanwhile, elsewhere, and now for something completely different. Now, uh, enhancement is things like, Jen got interested in fashion. Meanwhile, she was getting ready to graduate from high school. Jen got interested in fashion. At that time, Ginny decided to go to Australia. And you can see it's, I initially thought that since the difference in information was greatest with enhancements, that kiddies would avoid enhancement and they just do a lot of repetition. Boy, was I wrong. I was totally wrong. Kids do one thing and then another thing completely different, and now for something completely different, and one, now for something. That's the kids' cartoon. That's why they like the action movies. The psychological dramas are elaboration. Nothing happens for pages on pages and pages, except, should I do this? Should I do that? You know. And you can see. Elaboration, it's an adult thing. Mm. Enhancement, that's for the kiddies. And somehow our job has to be get to somehow get them slow down, think carefully, <laughs> and uh, when you've got a dilemma, treat it like a dilemma and not like just another slapdash decision to be made. Um, notice the contrary to what I said at the beginning, uh, Sometimes shorter is more complex. So for example, all of these are long, but when Ginny went to Australia, Jen got interested in fashion, hypotaxis, subordinate clause, shorter. As Jen got interested in fashion, she started losing interest in education. Becoming more and more interested in fashion, Jen got a job designing clothes. And you can see that actually clauses collapse into single words. And those words are scientific concepts. So interest in fashion, fashion interest, fashionista. Mm. You can see gradually they're collapsing into what Halliday calls grammatical metaphor, which is the idea that something that's really a process, it should take a whole clause like growing up, becomes a single noun like growth, which you can measure. That is concept formation. That's what Vygotsky is talking about. Now, he, Vygotsky doesn't actually tell us how, but Halliday does, and this is why I can't really say one without saying the other. And Would, would,
0: would, Halliday, would Halliday recommend like offering different grammatical templates for for students to to write? Uh, you know, to try out different templates that are maybe increasingly abstract or increasingly toward the scientific concept as a sort of exercise that is more likely to lead toward higher, uh, higher psychological function style thinking?
1: I think Halliday would be realistic. He would say that the same struggle I described, where you talk about the nuclear family and the kid says, oh, I don't understand that. You, know, you mean the family's going to blow up like an atomic bomb? And you say, no, 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 uh, I want you to think of your family, you know, mom, dad, two kids, and so on. And then the kid says, oh, yeah, I understand nuclear family. just means my family. <laughs> you know, I think uh, Halliday would say, when you first start talking about concepts like fracture growth rate or something like that, you know, take, take the concept fracture growth rate, which you need in order to understand a scientific paper. Uh, you say to the, the child, says, what's a fracture growth rate? You say, oh, that just means um, how quickly the crack in your, you know, your uh, new sofas or or whatever, or or how quickly the crack in your coffee cup is spreading or something like that. And then the child would say, okay, I'm just going to use that because it's a lot easier. (laughs) And you can see that it takes some years before the business of of thinking about feelings and uh, feeling your thoughts and speaking your mind eventually results in a transformation of vocabulary, because the transformation of vocabulary doesn't mean anything until the transformation of the other higher psychological functions has really taken place. And to give you an example of that, I want to end with my school's um, I webtoon. Yeah, this is my school's webtoon. Um, and uh, I'll just translate this for you. This, the story is nothing happens. I mean, what happens is that this couple who we'll call Sanju and julie they they split up over a kind of a silly fight I and mean, she's had a bad day she got splashed in the, by some rain and and the boyfriend turned up late and the boyfriend um, uh, you know she's feeling annoyed so they split up uh, but then, and, and they don't see each other for a couple of months, the way the kids kind of pout and do. But then, unfortunately, the professor puts them in the same group to do a project. And, of course, they fight like cats and dogs throughout the whole project. That's what's kind of fun about the Webtoon, all the ways they're digging at each other and so on and so forth. And here they are fighting about a movie review. They both had to write a movie review. And uh, uh, she says, your movie review is too sentimental. It's too full of emotion. And he says, Oh, well, you're just like a robot. You know, you're just describing what happened. Nobody wants to know what the, the list of characters and the list of events and so on. So then they turn to another member of the group and say, Okay, what do you think? Which one's the best one? And of course, the other character doesn't want to say because she says, Chooses Juhi's, then Juhi's mad. And if she chooses Sanghu, then Sanghu's mad. So she says, Take it to the professor. And The professor says, how about starting all over again from the very beginning, deadline next week? Huh? (laughs) The professor says, well, look, I mean, one of these is just wordy and pedantic and full of jargon that I can't understand. Doesn't seem to go anywhere. And the other one is just going here and there and everywhere, but I don't even know what it's about doesn't have a central theme to it and then he says you know if the two of you could get together i guess that would be the right thing to do of course that's never going to happen anyway next week's the deadline good luck goodbye <laughs> i think it's a good web too i think it's a good story maybe not for adolescents but certainly for undergraduates about um about how both things, both the horizontal action movie and the vertical projection, both things, the concrete vivid experience and the abstract conceptual thinking go into the higher psychological functions that you gotta have the foundation before you can have the superstructure. Anyway, shall we talk about some of your questions, Anthony? makes sense.
0: Yeah, please, Um, that was great. Thank you very much, uh, and I believe I followed along. Usually, I have to rewatch, and when I la- label different sections of the video, that's where I actually am able to pull apart the concepts that were <laughs> that were shared with me. But I think this was a very very pa- palatable and really really good. But thank you for that. Um, yeah. Okay. Thank you. I see. You- Copied my questions down. Um, if you don't mind, would you would you start? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I'll jump in. if I'll jump in by request. If I could clarify anything.
1: Okay, it's a great question. Um, Anthony has plucked out something I said, sort of in a blur <laughs> in a previous video, uh, and and then he said he's not very interested in the the sex part of this, and yet this is a comment that's entirely about sex education. So what happened was I was discussing um, some research I've been doing on how Korean kids learn to say no, Mm. how they learn to say no to strangers, because Korean kids are, are taught to be polite and friendly. And this necessarily makes them uh, prone to sexual predation. So what do you do? How do you teach kids Uh, to say no, when they don't really know why they're saying no or what they're saying no to. Uh, And then a couple of years go by, and uh, you find that the situation has somewhat changed. Uh, The child does understand what the child is saying no to. uh, And it's gross, and it's icky, and it's disgusting. uh, And people like that should be uh, tortured and hanged and cut into pieces and so on and so forth. And You know, I'm afraid that some of the discourse around sexual predation in the um, United States is still at that level. We're not actually thinking about what's good for the kids. We're just thinking about what's bad for the sexual predator. Uh, And it turns out that if you make things as bad as possible for sexual predators, you increase the murder rate. That is to say, the kids tend to get murdered instead Mm. instead of surviving. Uh, so I would say that the level, I'd say that a lot of sexual predation, a lot of the discourse around sexual predation is actually making making the problem worse and not better, making sexual predators more violent and not less. So anyway, um, I said that uh, the line of development from saying no when you don't know why no, to saying no when you do know why no, but and you're and outraged, and to, to finally understanding um. What sexual predation is, what free what free consent is, and and even just sort of very small things like to go back to the, this webtoon. One of the key questions between Juhi and uh, Sangwoo, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, it should be Sangwoo, not Sangju. I'm sorry, Juhi and Sangwoo is how close should I get? So, for example, when Juhi spills coffee on her leg, am I allowed to? use a Kleenex to wipe it up. It's her leg, you know, but it's my Kleenex. <laughs> so, am I allowed to do that? Or is, that, is she gonna think that's creepy and gross? These are all questions that adolescents have to figure out. It's part of developing the concept of free will, developing the concept of freedom, consent. In addition to the kinds of things that I had to worry about, which was preventing AIDS and watching your best friends die because they're they're gay, uh and you know in addition to there's all this me there's me too stuff I, I don't know if you want to call that woke or or not woke but anyway it's they're real issues yes so it's a single line of development it's the development of free will consent freedom control of your own body but in a sense it's not from the child's point of view it's not you know a child doesn't know that saying no to strangers is about free will freedom consent and control of your own body the child doesn't know that. And um, even the nine-year-old or the 10-year-old who wants to see the sexual predators cut up into tiny little pieces and served in the school lunch cafeteria, you know, even that child doesn't understand issues of, wouldn't be able to understand issues of, you know, should I hug or not hug when I meet somebody? Well... (laughs) Before COVID, maybe yes. After COVID, no. I mean, these are very, very complex issues. And from the child's point of view, they are broken up into a whole bunch of issues. And there is no common thread. So part of the teacher's job is to show that they're connected, actually. That uh, part of the really important part of sex education is not how the organs function or how you can stop them from functioning if you want to do that. And, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with that. It's really... How do you get comfortable with people, not so much people who you're attracted to, but here's the real revelation. You know, adolescents have been staring in the mirror. They don't like what they see. They think they're ugly. They think they're creepy. They think they're disgusting. One of the great revelations of anybody's adolescence is that actually other people think I'm cool. That's astounding. And when we say that you, know, you fell in love with somebody, what really happened, <laughs> nine times out of 10, what really happened was you somehow became conscious that you're not that disgusting. And that's kind of an interesting line of development. From our point of view, it's the same line of development. From their point of view, not at all. And our job is to show that the various things are connected. How can we do that? Well, you can do worse than this webtoon. This webtoon tells the story pretty well of two kids kind of getting disgusted with themselves, getting disgusted with each other, and then realizing that actually they do kind of go together at least for this project, at least until the end of next week, at least until the final exam is over. So that's sort of my answer to that question. I, I, think, it's not, I think you're right, Anthony, when you say it's not just sex-specific that um, that the crises that kids undergo uh, include not just sexual development, but also the development of personality. Uh, You know, kids change enormously in their personality as they're growing up. And they don't really have anything like an adult personality until well into their adolescence. Uh, And also, you know, to go back to my students, choice of profession, you know, she's now of circling back to being a teacher, her both her parents were teachers, and so she hates teaching and wants to be a fashionista. Uh, but now she's kind of you know, she's kind of circling back to the idea of teaching, and you know, it's not just because of Professor Kellogg, it's also because of um, times are hard out there, stable jobs are good, not a lot of jobs in fashion, not a lot of jobs in teaching either, let it be said, mm-hmm. because of the declining birth rate. But that's another story, okay? So so I- Fill me in on the next one. You're a, pa- you're a parent. Tell me about your kids. Yes. Well,
0: we, we talked about uh, the formation of, I guess, what I'm calling the negation line of development. Clarify mm-hmm. that if you want. How it, it might start just by a sort of like instinctual a very crude like yelling of no or mm-hmm. the no phase. And then you know, that phase sort of manifests in different ways as students get older. Like for instance, my eight, soon to be nine-year-old, She's amazing, truly special. But she's a major pain in the ass these days. As she's far as just, <laughs> yeah, that, she's going to be so cool. But um, yeah, I mean, it's no to everything. Everything is difficult, and and I have found this concept uh, helpful in terms of just like you know ma- maintaining my own emotion and uh, realizing that this is quite possibly, at least at least according to the way we talked about it last time. This is healthy. This is normal. This is uh, actually part of a longer developmental line that will probably end up somewhere very good because she does not have to be taught <laughs> how to say no, or you know, or how to stand up for what she wants, as annoying as it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very helpful for me to think of this line, negation line, when I'm frustrated. And I was just wondering if there were other lines of development that. Uh, that you could maybe shed light on. That maybe look, you won't recognize them in, in childhood as like the start or connected to something that mani- you know, manifests differently in adulthood. Um, I hope that makes sense. Well,
1: because I think, I think
0: when I could zoom out, sorry, sorry, I think when I could zoom out and see that it's part of a bigger picture, yeah. I think I just uh, function in a more healthy way when I'm able to do that. And I think I have like 10 minutes, up to 10 minutes, so thanks. Okay,
1: Okay, so let me try to tie these two questions together, Mm. uh, tie the two lines together. Let's take uh, the three-year-old no, which Vygotsky has some funny things to say about three-year-old no. So uh, three-year-olds say no, even to things that they want. So for example, um, little boy wakes up from a nap, finds that, uh, older brother and mother have gone off to, uh, for a walk and is really upset at being left behind. So then mother comes back, realizes three-year-old is very angry and says, okay, I'll take you to the zoo. How's that? Now, of course, the kid wants to go to the zoo and would love to go to the zoo. But since he, he's mad at mommy, he says, no, I'm not going to go to the zoo. No, no. And Vygotsky says, this is really interesting because previously children could not really distinguish between likes and wants. But here, the kid wants something but hates mommy so much that it's just going to no know on her for the, you know, for the rest of the day. You know? And there's some really wonderful stories he tells about how uh, I'm just going to make my own boat and go to America and leave you all here. And you're going to, and mommy says, and we we're going to meet you by the Statue of Liberty, waving at you when you arrive on, your, on the boat that you made out of the couch. And all this stuff. It's a terribly funny story, particularly since mommy is more imaginative than the three year old. Well, that doesn't last very long. It turns out that by the time kids get to be seven or eight, the no line of development is no longer, no, I hate you, you know, no, <laughs> just no. It, it turns out to be lying, fantasizing. And I, I would say that lying, in the sense of really lying, of not telling the truth, Uh, and fantasizing are very much part of the same line of development. Uh, Kids, you know, whereas the the world of play for the three-year-old is always shared. You know, mommy, will you play with me? Daddy, will you play with me? Uh, As soon as the kids get to be seven or eight, they want to play with other kids, of course. Uh, But they don't necessarily want to share everything they're thinking. No, 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 no. And so part of the no line of development is... No, this belongs to me, my thoughts, my feelings, my higher psychological functions are mine and they're not yours and I won't share them. And if you ask me about them, I'm gonna lie. Uh, The ability to to lie uh, and also to create fiction. Now, if you think about it, lying and fiction are not exactly the same thing. Uh, lying is meant to deceive, and fiction is meant to entertain. And the eight-year-old, the seven-year-old, some of them can be pretty entertaining with their fictions uh, in a way that was impossible for the three-year-old. And by the time the child gets to be an adolescent, and a lot of the fantasies have to do with sex, uh, these are absolutely not shared. You know, these will not be shared with anybody and, can, and very often cannot even be shared with the adolescent himself or herself. The the real fantasies. I think you can see that from the child's point of view, this no line of negation is not a single line. That if you ask a seven year old, you know, does the ability to make up stories have anything to do with not wanting to go to the zoo? Obviously not, they have nothing to do with each other. It's from our point of view, from the point of view of the parents, that these turn out to be a single line of development. And so once again, I think, you know, the point I was making at the beginning, that uh, there's the teacher's point of view on this, and then there's the student's point of view on it, and things can look very different. Both points of view are important. Both points of view are data. But uh, uh, from Vygotsky's point of view, uh, it is a single line of development. Is it the only line of development? Absolutely not. I think... Doing has its line of development, action, physical action. So, for example, uh, the kinds of physical games that kids, I'll never forget 2002 when the World Cup came to South Korea. Mm -hmm. My office was overlooking a parking lot. And you could see, because the kids were trying to get together football teams, they didn't know very much about football. It was new. I'm sorry, soccer. It's not football. It's soccer over, over in your neck of the woods. But it's called football. Uh, So they're playing soccer, right? And so you got three-year-olds and seven-year-olds and 11-year-olds all playing soccer on one team and they play, they're playing totally different games. You know, the three-year-olds are just kind of stomping after the ball and giving it a kick and they don't care where it goes. Mm. Yeah. And then, then you've got the five-year-olds who are just following the ball, like a, like a, you know, a a hive of bees kind of following the ball this way and that way. Uh, And then you've got 11-year-olds who are seriously interested in rules like the offside rule. And they will bitch for hours (laughs) about whether somebody disobeyed the offside rule or whether they get a free kick or something like that. Same game, same line of development from our point of view. But I don't think the kids experience it that way at all. And their experience matters because it's their experience that really tells us um, that, that really gives us that distinction between higher psychological functions and lower psychological functions. If the child's experience didn't matter, there would be no difference between concepts and pseudo-concepts, because it's the it's the child's pirishvanya, the underlying acts mm. of thinking, that, that really underlies the distinction between the pseudo-concept and the, and the true concept. So, yeah, I think uh, doing has a line of development. Um, sexuality certainly has a line of development. Um, Feelings, emotions have a very strong line of development. Uh, the emotions, uh, and and the interesting thing is that all of these lines of development—doing, um, feeling, and thinking, and saying—just to give you the the uh, the exoteric terms for them, the terms that come out of our own grammar—all yeah. uh, of these lines of development, I think, you would say that they. Are broken. And the the interesting thing is that they're broken almost always at the same place. So three years old, seven or eight, um, 13, 14, and so on. And then finally, there's another problem at the very end of adolescence, which is unlike all of the other crises. The other crises seem to be internal in some way. Uh, So there's something Obviously there's some dialogue going on with the environment, but there is something profoundly internal that brings the crisis on. The last crisis I strongly feel is external, that most of my kids are having a crisis, not about their feelings and not about their thoughts, but about their real job prospects, their real financial difficulties, uh, and real problems with sexuality and sexual identity. And um and partners, boy real boyfriends.
0: Yeah, joining joining the world, sort of, joining right. the
1: wider world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. End of childhood, beginning of life. Yeah.
0: So these, these breaks that you just mentioned, these breaks when they're resolved in some manner, that's where a, sort of the shift, the shift into the like sort of the new level of development that line happens, or the
1: hopefully. New, like,
0: New
1: I, I, yeah i think that one way of understanding what what is called mental illness and mental illness is kind of a weird term if you think about it i mean you know you don't uh if you go to a doctor with a broken leg or with tuberculosis or something like that we can be very sure about what's causing it and also what the prognosis is and and what the treatment is supposed to be and this is totally untrue of mental illness <laughs> you go to the doctor it's like wow i no, I've got schizophrenia. Or whatever, something like that. Oh, yes. Well wow. <laughs> autism is another one. <laughs> yeah. So all of these things we call mental illnesses uh, are not like having a broken leg or a tuberculosis or whatever. They're not, they're more like syndromes. And because they're syndromes, I'm starting to think that they're better understood as, as crises that don't end. So uh You know, if you say this to the wrong people, they say, oh, you mean I'm really schizophrenic when I I thought I was only 13? Well, I mean, that's the difference between being schizophrenic and being 13. When you're 13, there is a resolution. You know, as Dan Savage says, it gets better. It does get better. But there are people among us for whom it doesn't get better for whatever reason.
0: Yes, that's an interesting way to put it. i have to go to work and do my other thing uh okay. is, there, is there any any like maybe one minute or less little bit you'd like to share or did or, or did you enjoy this today or anything
1: that's good fun anthony just just um that, uh, i think it's i think what you're doing is really great and in a sense you are the answer to your own question what is the best way to to make higotsky more exoteric and less esoteric the answer is Listen to Anthony Barra's podcast on Vygotsky. That's the way to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, but I'm starting to get my interest again in this topic. I was sort of drifting for a while, but it's, it always pulls me back. And, uh, Are
1: we going to get you back on MCA?
0: Yeah, I'm and, not going
1: back until you do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll talk, we'll talk, but uh, I got to say, and you, you already know what I'm going to say, but it's, it's a pleasure to see you, and uh, I always enjoy communicating with you online or in person via zoom or whatever it might be and uh, i hope we do it again soon yeah yeah i do do appreciate it and uh yeah cool i'll see you soon
1: okay take care okay thanks
0: man yeah nice to see you bye